We're going to be in Exodus chapter 17, so why don't you turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. The title is God Present to Preserve. Present to Preserve. We've seen Israel going through some trials already as they are in the wilderness. Um, They didn't have water, and as they finally came upon it, they found the bitter waters of, uh, 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 where is it? Mirabah, or Mira, Amara, and um, they couldn't drink that. The Lord instructed uh, Moses how to deal with that. He was to take a tree, throw it in the waters. As it did that, the water was changed and it became sweet. Then they go a little bit further and they get hungry. I mean, these are, these are natural things. These are not like, oh, why were they thirsty or why were they hungry? No, I mean, that's what happens. We all are very well aware of that. But when they get, um, when they get hungry, they're like, what are, in the, what are we going to do? There's no bakery around here. How are we going to eat? There's no fields of wheat. They're out in the wilderness, and um, the Lord shows up, and he supplies for them that manna. Well, as we move into uh, chapter 17, we're going to first look at verses 1 through 7, and we're going to see that the Lord um, is present to preserve them in the thirst that they are going to go through, Um, and then we'll see him present to preserve them in battle against the enemy. So let's begin reading there in chapter 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel sent out, uh, set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin. Think of not like transgression sin, but like Sinai sin. According to the commandment of the Lord, encamped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. Again, we talked about this last week. But could you imagine what it's like to have two million people demand a glass of water from you? Yeah, you can't. I mean, just how amazing. Um, He says, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? I think a lot of us at this point would have said, I'm gone. You would have grabbed your stick. You would have got your little you know, knapsack on the back. And you were just like, you guys are on your own. I'm gone. You, but he doesn't do that. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. And also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, the Nile River, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not. Once again, Israel in this place of needing water, not sinful. We all have different needs that come up in our life where we need to see God step in, show up, and preserve. That's fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the needs of our life. The question is, how am I going to respond to those needs? Imagine trying to find enough water for millions of people and all of their livestock. Got a picture there, if you could put that up, please. Um, of, of the wilderness um, near Sinai. It doesn't look very watery, does it? And I don't think it's changed very much over the years. But God is going to supply for them. I mean, this is kind of the area. This is where they would go and pick up their, uh, their manna in the morning. But this is not Mount Sinai, nor are they at Mount Sinai quite yet. Um, it's going to take them a couple more chapters, but they're in the region of that, so probably maybe the slopes around that. But they are headed in that region. And they accuse Moses and therefore God of not being able to take care of them. You don't care about us. And, and this is what it was. As, he, as the complaint went against Moses, it actually became a complaint against the Lord. When we complain against our circumstances and the people that are around us, we're complaining against the Lord. Um, you know, when I... Um, we, I don't know how far in. I'd have to look at a calendar and think it. Uh, but we had been here about five or six years. 
maybe not even that long. And um, we had decided to do a little renovation on some office units. Actually, if you go straight down, you know, this Coralie here, there's some office units on the right, Timber Oak Court. That's exactly where we were. And we had, we had done some work on it, and, you know, we, we didn't have enough. Um, and so we ended up, I had to end up go getting a job, to get a job to be able to finish the project because I wasn't going to get, this, you know, the check that I was getting. So I started... Um, uh, delivering newspapers. And yes, I was called Pastor Troy the Paper Boy. <laughs> if I ever write a book, that will be a chapter in the book. It'll be Pastor Troy the Paper Boy. And I learned a lot of things about ministry and my own heart and life as I was doing that. Um, and the one thing I remember doing, so I got this job. And the reason I did that was because I could, I could get up at like 3 in the morning. I could go deliver the papers get back in bed around 6, 6.30, sleep for about three hours, get up and be back around the church around 10 so I could still maintain some office hours. Um, <clears throat> it was good I was young. That's what all I have to say. So that's, that's what I was doing. And um, so the first day I delivered these papers all by myself, um, I was coming to the end. And, and I, wasn't, I wasn't grumbling or complaining um, but as I pulled into this parking lot where I was going to deliver these papers, the Lord said, oh, and by the way, don't ever complain. And I, I knew that it was the Lord. And I'm like, all right, Lord, I, won't, I will never complain about this provision in my life. And he said, I don't want you to ever get sympathy from people. I don't want, if anybody ever says, oh, we're sorry, I want you to stop them because this is my provision. You don't need pity for what I provide for you. And um, it was a powerful lesson in my life. And I, I did have to, um, some people that just were caring and, and, you know, wished that I didn't have to work. So I'm so sorry you have to do that. I'm like, you know, don't say that because the Lord is able to take care. This is his provision, his plan. It is all going to be okay. But we do all need to learn this lesson, right, of when we complain against our circumstances, it is a complaint against the Lord, I've shared the story with you before, but, you know, Tyler was in third grade, second grade, and he wrote a paper about how he had to buy his own shoes. And um, turned that in, he turned it in, and uh, the reason he had to buy his own shoes, which he really didn't ever have to do, was because he had brand new shoes. Um, Pastor Troy, the paper boy, was not loaded and um, with money. And when we were out up at Otter Creek, you know, restaurant, and I said, hey, don't get in the, can we go outside? Yeah, don't get in the creek. I won't. Well, he gets in the creek, brand new pair of shoes. And so I said, you know, you're going to buy your next pair of shoes, which in my mind meant you're going to have to work up. You do a lot of chores. You're going to save up your money. Then you're going to take your money and you're going to go buy it. It's still my money, right? But I wanted him to learn the lesson. I never did that. It was a dad threat. Anybody ever make a dad threat before? So it was a dad threat. And um, I don't recommend them, but that was the one. And I forgot about it. And so until... It was parent-teacher conference, and this paper was slid across the desk and said, could you just read this and kind of, a, I'm curious about it. And I'm like, okay, so, you know, second or third grade, and it's something like, you know, I was up at Otter Creek, and I got in the water, and I ruined my shoes. Now I have to buy my own shoes. And so I'm reading this, like, two-sentence thing, and it's taking me, like, minutes. I'm like, how am I going to explain this, you know? Because she thinks I'm not taking care of my kids right now. She thinks I'm not providing for them. This little dude ratted me out, you know? <laughs> he is going to buy his own shoes, you know, and everything else. So I, I'm just, so I explained the story. She just laughed. She goes, oh, she goes, I was just wondering. But, you know, in that moment, I felt like I was being evaluated. Um, and this is what we do to the Lord when we complain. He's our Heavenly Father. He takes care of us. So if you don't have what you think you need, guess what? You don't need it. You don't need it. I don't need it. The Lord will supply in His timing. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's going to, you're going to, you've got a few of the verses up there, but I decided I want to look at a little bit more. I, this is just an important passage I think we need to know. I referred to it last week, but I want you to see why is it that God takes them, I mean, if he knows where all the springs are and he knows where all the food is, why does he keep going to these dry holes? You know, what, what's wrong? The Lord has an intention behind this. 
chapter 8, verse 1, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years. So we're 40 years from the time in Exodus that we're reading. To humble you, test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, which is every morning you can get up and you'll have bread. That's the word of the Lord. You don't have bread. You have my word. My word says you're going to have bread. So that's what you live on is that word from me that I'm going to provide for you. Verse 4, your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord God chastens you. He transitions in this chapter saying you're going to come into a land that has springs and it's going to be productive. There's going to be all kinds of uh, crops that you're going to have. You're going to have it in abundance, but I don't want you to forget. I want you to remember that it was me that provided you all these years. So verse 11, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. And that in forgetting him that you would not keep his commandments. You would you begin to stray. And so he warns them. Look at verse 15. He says, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of a flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good to you in the end. So he goes on to give this warning that they should not forget the Lord. So God gave them lessons along the way that taught them that he was their provider which I think we should take to ourselves and understand that God is going to take you on a journey through this life. You already probably know it to be true, but he's going to take you on a journey through this life, and he's going to bring you to moments in your life where there's no bread, where there's no water, where the job doesn't come through like you thought it was, when the plans that you've made fall apart, when the ministry that you're engaged in seems to be threatened on every side. What are you going to do? Are you going to trust the Lord? Are you going to begin to complain against the Lord? There in verse 2, we read that um, we read the word contended with twice. They contended with Moses. And then Moses says, and you tempted the Lord. The word contend means to quarrel or to strive. This quarrel and striving had stones in their hands, right? They want to stone me, God. Two million people want to stone me. This is not good. You thought you had a bad day. And so this word, though, for contend could also, in different contexts, could be used to speak of somebody that was bringing a court case, a a complaint against you, and it would go to trial. But the word tempt that we read there at the end of verse 2 of tempting God, don't think of it tempt in the traditional English sense of the word as like an enticement to sin. Think of tempt in in the sense of you are testing the quality of that item. Is it genuine? Is it real? You're testing the character of a person. Are they legitimate? Are they sincere? Are they trustworthy? And he says, you've tempted the character of God. You are try, you're saying that God is not who he has promised to be. And so they, were, they found themselves in this place. Can we trust the Lord? He's brought us out here to kill us. Really? I mean, that's really what they said. But really? Ten plagues in Egypt? The parting of the Red Sea? Manna every day? The manna you picked up that day? And that you ate that day that God is providing for you. The waters that were made sweet. uh, All of this. You're questioning whether he's brought you out here to kill you. And yet they were. And we can look and say, well, that's kind of ridiculous. But hold on a second. How do we respond when things begin to squeeze our life? When those things that we just mentioned don't turn out the way we thought. When the doctor's report doesn't go the way we planned. When the stock market doesn't go the way we've anticipated. All these things. How does our heart respond 
to the Lord. Are we people that are full of faith? Are we trusting him? And when the Lord gives you the plan and provision, okay, you're thirsty? You're really thirsty. Yes. You got rocks and you want to stone him. Yes. Okay, I'll give you water. Here's a rock. It's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, if you were the person, you're like, no, thirsty. I don't need a rock. I'm thirsty. And we see that God's ways are not our ways. This is the last thing that you would expect to happen. But God wants us to trust in him and to believe in him, to have faith. And even what we can't see. He wanted this nation to get thirsty. So that he could quench their thirst. He wanted them to get hungry so he could feed them. And that their stomachs would stop growling. That's what he wanted to do. You may be in circumstances this morning that God has specifically designed to create need in your life. Have you ever thought of that before? Well, is it, is it God chastening me? Well, it's not chastening here. There are times when he will chasten. This is, not, this is not punitive, okay? This is not judgment. This is, I need you to be in a place of, of desperate need so that I can show up in your life. And when I show up in your life, you will never forget the manna. You will never forget the, the waters at Mara that were made sweet. You'll never forget when the water came out of a rock and fed two million of you and all of the livestock. I mean, when, when Moses struck this rock, I mean, back away, because this thing would have been a gusher. It wouldn't have been some nice little smooth trickle. How long would that take for two million to be able to get to in all of their livestock? This was something that was impressive. And everybody would have seen. And now as they walked away, like, can you believe that? I can't believe that. I guess God's going to take care of us. Yeah, I don't know why we're doubting anyways. Of course he's going to take care of us. And then they'll come to the next scene where they'll question the Lord again. And they'll complain again. But we need to be the place where we are walking by faith. Faith is what is seen. It's the evidence when there's no material proof for our eyes that provision is coming. I'm going to take care of you. And you believe it even when you can't see how that's going to happen. Hebrews 11.1 1 from the New Living Translation reads like this. What is faith? It is that confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. And that's the a, that's a saving faith you have. You have faith in Jesus Christ that he's going to take you to heaven. You don't see heaven. You don't even see Jesus in a physical form. You weren't handed a ticket, but yet you know and you believe, you have faith that that word, that because I've put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I will have eternal life. You have faith. And that's exactly what the Lord would have us to do. But what about faith when you're thirsty? What about faith when the circumstances seem like they're unwinding? Well, they are unwinding. Well, maybe God's going to change you and take you in a different direction. The Lord is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. You can trust God. You can't trust yourself. It's like, well, I'm not going to let myself down. Yeah, but you, you know what? Your body can let you down. You, you don't know that you have tomorrow like you had today. And people can let you down in circumstances, but not the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. The Lord is always wanting us to walk in that place of faith. Do you trust the Lord in your present dry place? Do you trust the Lord in that need you are feeling in your life? Well, why did he bring it? Because he wants to humble you. And he wants to work works in your life. So that in 10 years from now, or 20 years, or like this, this story here, 40 years from now, that you will have seen God's mighty provision in your life, and you can believe him for the greater things. They were going to go into the promised land. And the Lord is building lessons in them so that they will have faith to believe that God could give them victory over the giants. 
So they have all these lesser battles and uh, circumstances that God shows up in. It says, wait a minute, if God showed up with manna, if God showed up at the flinty rock, if God showed up at the bitter waters, then God's going to show up against the giants. God's going to give us victory. We can believe. And this is what the Lord is doing in your life. There was a a moment in my life that I've been thinking about um, kind of a lot here lately. Um, I was at a pastor's conference up in, um, uh, up in uh, where was it, Sandy Cove, um, and, uh, Maryland. And so I, I was up there, and Pastor Chuck was there. And I'm going to the same conference tomorrow. Um, and I remember there was a breakout session, and it was for senior pastors only. And I'm just to sit and um, ask Pastor Chuck some questions. I thought, oh, that's awesome. I'm looking forward to it. And for some reason, there's only like 10 or 15 people in there. So there's hardly anybody was in this room. And, I, you know, I, I had met Pastor Chuck on a couple of occasions, talked with him, you know, got some counsel direction in, in ministry a couple of times. And, um, you know, he knew that I was out here. But I just asked him, I said, you know, Pastor Chuck, I've heard you say for years that, you know, when you go and start a church, that it takes a few years for the foundation to be laid. And I said, and I've been thinking a lot about that. And just what are those foundation stones that I should really be paying attention to? And um, Pastor Chuck, again, I had had conversations with him before. Um, and when he spoke to me, it was like he vanished. And it was like the Lord was just speaking. I'm not putting this on him. He was just the instrument. And as he began to talk, and I remember he just goes, Troy. And he just he looked straight at me and his finger. Went there, and it was... The Lord was speaking through him. He says, the Lord is teaching you to have faith. You've, you have faith. You believe in the Lord for salvation. You even had enough faith to believe in him to come out here. But there are things you need to learn as a pastor. There's faith that you need to have as a pastor. He's going to teach you in these early days that you will need for later. So he's teaching you to have faith. I don't fully understand it other than it was the Lord, okay? Chuck was not being mean to me. He was not being stern with me. He was just being emphatic. And as he was emphatic, man, it was like the Lord just peeled open my heart and my life. I, I, I could have cried at that moment, which if you know me, I don't cry very often. And I don't, it's not like I try to be a tough guy and I don't cry. It's just I don't cry. Um, so um, I'm not opposed to it, and if, you know, I'm not making any sense. That's just not me. But in that moment, I could have cried. I could have just started weeping because I knew that it was the Lord and that he had spoken to me. And I can tell you that that is what the Lord has done over the years, repeatedly bringing me to places where I must have faith and trust in him. It's what he's doing in your life, though, too. That's not just a pastor's lesson. That's an everybody's lesson. All of you are learning to have faith and trust in the Lord. And that's why you may have the current experience that you're going through. But there's even more in this passage than what we've looked at already. Here's something amazing. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. <clears throat> Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be, be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. And all passed through the sea. So he's talking about the wilderness generation. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. They all ate manna. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock. That spiritual rock? That followed them. And that rock was Christ. So there, it was a physical rock that was supplying water. But what Paul is saying is, this was the Lord himself in their midst taking care of them. He is that water from which they drank. And that becomes significant, especially when we think of what Jesus had to say during the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is when they would recall and they would remember they, they were in the wilderness. They were journey, journeying. They would look out in the stars at night. They would have the cloud. They would remember the manna. They would remember the water. All of the provisions that God had made. And so at the Feast of Tabernacles, every year, they would set up these little lean-tos against the side of their house with palm branches, leaving space for them to look out into the stars at night. And the kids would say, why are we sleeping outside? Why are we camping? Oh, we're camping because when we were in the wilderness, 
We lived like this, and God took care of us. He gave us manna. He gave us what? Yeah, manna. And he gave us, and they went through the whole story of God's provision. It's the Feast of Tabernacle. They're remembering the wilderness wandering. And Jesus, in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 9, on the last day of the feast, this is what we read. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, <clears throat> out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. One of the things they would do at this feast is they would take these large jars full of water, and they would pour them onto the stony pavement. And it was to signify, remember how the Lord gave water out of the rock. This is going on, and Jesus stands up and says, Hey, is anyone thirsty? Because if you come and you drink from me, I'll give you fountains of living water. And they certainly understood what he was saying, and that he is the one that is what they're needing to drink from. Wait a minute, it's, it's the Lord who has provided the drink. He says, well, if you come to me, I will satisfy that thirst in you. And that is something that Jesus is still saying today. There is in every man, woman, and child a yearning, a thirst, a hunger, a desperation to make things right. But not all people understand what's out of place and what's wrong and how to fix it. But what they're longing for is a connection, a reconnection with their maker. And that they can be made full, they can be made complete. Because so many people, well, everyone outside of Christ, they're, they're thirsty. And they're trying many different things to satisfy that thirst. Some of them are, are out there and they're trying to attain a position and get a place of power and, and influence. If I get that, then, I, then I'll be all right. Then I'll be satisfied. Well, others are trying to find it through, um, you know, amassing a bunch of money and getting a lot of things. If I have more stuff, then I'll be secure. Then I'll be okay. Others are trying to find it through pleasure, all types of pleasure. And it is simply a cry of the thirst of their soul. And none of those things can satisfy. None of those things will ever be able to satiate. As a matter of fact, the more you pursue them, the thirstier you're going to get. But the problem is there is a temporary satisfaction that comes in the process of trying to get more. That numbs us to that place until the desperate moment comes. The problem is not the people around you. It's not that you haven't been recognized and have the, the right position and power. It's not because you're missing out on the, you know, the right pleasures. The problem in your life is that you're separated from God. Your sins have separated you from God, just like it did me and everybody else. And when we come to the Lord and we ask him to cleanse our sin, what we read happen here in John 7, 37 through 39, is that the Spirit comes into our life. And when that happens, it is like a fountain of living water springing up in our hearts. It becomes an overflow experience because now you are in fellowship with God. And this is what the spiritual lesson is for us today from that scene there in Exodus chapter 17. You need the Lord. You need the Lord. He is the answer. It's not more of whatever else you're pursuing. It is Jesus Christ and knowing your maker and fellowshipping with him. Well, let's keep on reading. We pick up in the second half of this chapter at verse 8, and we read of the victory, the presence that God is going to um, bring them, uh, well, victory that he will bring them in the battle. So look at verse 8 with me. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose some men and go out, fight with Amalek tomorrow, and I will stand on top of the hill with the rod <coughs> excuse me, of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur 
went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, called its name, The Lord is My Banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, and the Lord will have wars with Amalek from generation to generation. So they're now they're preserved from thirst. Now they're going to be preserved in the battle. The Amalekites are going to be a thorn in the side of Israel from generation to generation until they are finally defeated by the Lord. That does not come until the days of King David. And so they dealt with them. As a matter of fact, one of the first battles they're going to have coming into the Promised Land is with the Amalekites. And it will be a perpetual enemy that they will have. You know, many have made this point, and I think there's something to it, that the Amalekites are a type of our own flesh that we struggle and we battle with all the time. Day by day, generation to generation, you struggle against the lust of your flesh and the, and the way it wants to live. But we must continually trust in the Lord. We must be in that, that spiritual connection with the Lord like Moses was, getting strength, receiving power, that we might have victory over the flesh. And one day... It will be eradicated, right? At the, when we go and we're in the presence of the Lord, we will no longer deal with our flesh. Good news, in case you've never heard this before, when you leave this life and you are in the presence of the Lord, you will never be tempted again. As it's been said, you have been delivered from the penalty of sin. You are being delivered from the power of sin, but one day you will be delivered from the presence of sin. And the Amalekite will no longer be there to tempt you or lure you in. But it's God who gives the victory, isn't it? You have different men doing different things. You have Moses who is lifted hands, praying. You have Aaron and her who are standing there and, 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 and helping and assisting him. You have Joshua and the men, the majority of the people, they're down on the battlefield and they're, 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 they're fighting the battle. But they, the victory is the Lord's. This is an enemy they are not capable of defeating on their own. And we know that because whenever Moses would drop his, his arms down, they would start to lose. But when their arms were up, which is a, a picture of intercession and calling upon the Lord and receiving and, and calling out, saying, we need victory from you, the Lord would provide that victory. And you have these two men. Well, of course, we know Aaron, his brother, uh, and her um, Josephus says this uh, was uh, Miriam's husband. That's, that's not a biblical uh, certainty. It's a historical possibility. And so there would have been his brother and brother-in-law that are standing there with him and supporting his arms. And it's, a, it's a, a picture for us of the need we have to remain connected. It's a picture of a few things. Number one, how we all need to do our part, right? Who do you want to take out of this scene? Do you want to remove Aaron and her? Do you want to remove Moses? Or do you want to remove Joshua? Well, all three of them are needed, and the soldiers, for this battle. Just like all of us have a place in the body of Christ to use our gifts and to do the work of the Lord. And I encourage you, walk through the open door that's in front of you. Well, but that's not really what I want to do. I really would rather, you know, do this, or I would, I would rather do that. But do what's in front of you, though. Do the thing that's in front of you. You know, well, I'm going to wait till this other door opens. If the Lord is telling you to, then by all means, wait. But listen, if you've been waiting for 20 years, stop waiting. Right? Well, you know, one day it's going to open. No, no, it's, it's never going to open. It, that door is never ever going to open for you because you have not learned to walk through the opportunity that's right in front of you 
You know, when I was called into full-time ministry at 17 years old, my next day did not have me standing here. You know, it was, it was a decade later that I ended up in Lynchburg, Virginia. And there's a lot of things that I did before I ever started teaching a Bible study. I just did the thing that was in front of me. And so, you know, whether you are, maybe you're thinking, well, I want to be, I want to be Moses. That's what I want. I want to be Aaron and her. I want to be, you know, Joshua. Well, maybe where the Lord has you is to be a soldier, which, by the way, is absolutely necessary for the victory. Uh, as Paul brings up in 1 Corinthians 12, what part of the body can you say I don't have need of? It's just a little pinky toe. You don't mind if we take that, do you? You don't really need that. I mean, you don't, you don't have it named or anything, do you? I mean, it's just... Can we just take that? It's not a big part of your body. Or how, can, well, I mean, you wouldn't even let us. I mean, how about trim your fingernails really, really low? How about that? No, it, well, it's just a fingernail. I know, but I don't, I don't like. You don't want to give up your, a part of your body. It's all necessary. And so are you in the body of Christ. So is she, and so is he, and so am I. We all have a part to do what God has called us to do. Do it. Find it and do it. And if, you, if you're not doing it, you are missing out. You are missing out and you're causing the load to be shifted onto somebody else's shoulders. And so step forward and find your place. Stay connected to the Lord. How important is prayer? Well, we see it here. I mean, when he wasn't praying, that symbol of uplifted hands to the Lord, the battle began to... to go in the favor of the Amalekites. Jesus said to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, he said that they should pray lest they what? Enter into temptation. You will lose the battle against Satan if you don't pray. And we know what they did. They slept. And they lost the battle that night. They didn't lose the war. But they lost that battle. And they ended up denying the Lord. So we all need to be in that place of constant prayer. You know, listen, if I was to ask you, do you pray enough, probably most of you would respond like I do. Uh, no. Enough? No, I don't pray enough. I pray, I do pray. I pray privately, I pray corporately. Do I read enough? Do I give enough? Do I evangelize enough? You know, I think any one of those things we could probably all say, I mean, you say enough. I don't know if I ever would feel comfortable saying enough. I've not attained, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. So there's that one sense where we're always walking to do more. I'm not talking about that. If you're not praying, then that's why you're defeated in your walk. If you're not connected with the Lord, then that's what's going on. And you need to develop that prayer life privately and corporately. These are things that we are commanded to do and is modeled for us is private prayer and corporate prayer. And I hope that you will engage in that and you'll make that uh, something that is constantly developing in our life. Well, as a memorial for winning this battle that they had fought, the first battle they had fought in, and again, the whole imagery is you need me in your battles, right? Um, they made a altar and they named it Yahweh Nisi or God is my banner. God is my banner. And I don't think about, you know, the bright colored fabric cloth banners that you see in some churches. That's not what's talking about. This was a, a military standard that was raised up. It was a way in which they were, uh, that's what Yahweh Nisi is. The Lord is my banner. He is, he's my standard. You know, the banners, the standards in wartime could send signals to the troops and tell them to rally here you know, will to the right, you know, retreat. It could communicate all different types of actions. And so, this was, the Lord is our banner. In other words, we look to Him and we find guidance and direction and we rally around the Lord who is our banner. We don't look to other things and other people to, to deliver us and to pull us through. The battle is real for all of us. It's not only just real for us individually, 
but it's real for us as the church. I, I'm just curious, and I don't mean like the church is not going to, you know, succeed because the Lord says that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But I'm just curious, just, you, you don't have to raise your hand because somebody else will do it. How many of you are concerned for the state of the church around? Is anybody concerned about the church? I want to tell you all of us should be desperately concerned for the church. Because pastors are not, and I'm not trying to put myself up. There are so many good pastors. We, a group of us were meeting this past week um, right over here. You know, pastors in town, we were praying and we were talking about that. So there are many good pastors. But there are so many pastors. The minority of pastors, a new survey just came out. I referred to it on, on last Wednesday. A new survey just came out from Barna. And 37% of pastors have a biblical worldview in America right now. 12% of youth pastors and children's ministry workers have a biblical worldview right now. That means in... Any church in America, I don't know what denominations. I bought, actually bought the report, 126-page report. They don't say what denominations. I really want to know that. So it's just, just churches, okay, any church. But there's an, on average, in America, there's an 88% chance that any kid walking into a youth group is going to be told something that is not biblical. Jude says that we should earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's you. That's me. That's us. We are the saints. We must contend for this. And we need to understand the battle that's raging right now. And, and you know what the battle is? It's what it's always been. It's the word of the Lord. Is this true or not? Because if you don't believe this is true, then why would you adopt a biblical worldview? If you don't have a biblical worldview, the short Statement of that is, you don't believe your Bible. You don't believe it's inspired. You don't believe it's come from the Lord. And we need to be aware and we need to be praying. We need to be praying for the young people. We need to be praying for pastors. You need to be praying for me. I mean, I, we, we do not have this problem that on staff or among the elders or among those that, that, that teach and we never will, by God's grace, we'll continue to hold that standard that if you don't believe in the Bible as being true and inspired, then, I mean, you know, you're welcome here, but you're not going to teach. You're not going to teach. I don't care how gifted you are. Give me an ungifted person that believes the Bible over a gifted person that doesn't believe the Bible any day. And so this is what we are up against. If those reports, and it was done by Barna, and I think he's reliable, if those reports are true, then just forecast 20 years from now, when these young people are now adults in the church. And so, listen, I, I believe the word of the Lord, the gates of hell, they're not going to prevail, um, and the church will always be triumphant, but I tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the church in America is always going to be triumphant. Like, well, how can you say that? Well, look at Europe. You know, look at Germany. Look at England. Look at, you know, look at the places where the revivals broke out, where great things were done. It's not that God's church just vanished. I don't believe his church will vanish, right? And just, well, I mean, the rapture I do, but, but not, not in the sense that we're talking about. The, the, the thought is, the church that's, that's growing, where the church is growing the fastest, is down in the southern hemisphere of, of the world. And so what may happen is the church won't be defeated, but we will just go, and we are going. We're going just like those other nations where the revivals, the reformation took place. And you know what? We're, we are the church. So to us, we're told to earnestly contend for the faith that has once and for all been delivered to the saints. It's in my hands and it's in your hands and we must contend for this. And I believe one way we contend is by praying. Let's wrap it up here. I want to circle back to this scene um, at the water. You know, many today are in that same desperate place of needing the living water that Jesus supplies. 
You need the fountain of living water. What did he say? He says, he, he spoke of the spirit that would come that had not yet been given. We are the temple of God. This is what the Bible tells us. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he comes and he dwells inside of this temple. That is really amazing, isn't it? I just contemplate that. I don't, I don't believe that's a metaphor. I believe he takes up residence in our life. And he says that this will be like a fountain of living water springing up within you. How could it be anything other that the presence of God is there? You have need today and the Lord wants to quench your thirst. The thirst is not for money, for sexual pleasure or power. Your thirst is for a restored relationship with God. Your soul is parched because it's been separated from the Lord. And your pursuit of these other things, as we mentioned, they're not going to satisfy you. They're going to make you even more thirsty. It's going to bring more damage and ruin into your life. And so we invite you to come and to receive from the Lord and get your life right and repent of your sin. Receive that salvation. Let him take up residence in your life. And know what it's like to connect and commune with the one who made you. When he made you, he made you with this God-shaped vacuum in your life. And you can put any number of things in it, but there's only one thing that's going to click in there and it's going to satisfy you. And that is a relationship with Jesus. That is why he came. I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He wasn't standing in the cemetery about to perform a resurrection when he said it. He was speaking to people that were living, breathing, but they were dead. And he wants to give them life. But some of you may be saying, well, you know what? I don't know. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I don't feel that. I don't sense that living water going on in my life that's being talked about. How come I don't feel it? I'm a believer. I don't know. Probably a conversation with somebody would be really helpful for you at this point in time. But let me talk about one what well, one possibility may be. Well, let me say this first. It, the problem is not the Lord. The problem is you. Now, if you find that offensive, I'm sorry, this is just some tough love here. If you do not feel the, the satisfying presence of God in your life, it is not the Lord who has failed you. It is something going on in your life. And you've got to address it. You know, this is what I think happens so often. It's like, well, I was a Christian, you know, and I wasn't satisfied and I wasn't fulfilled and I had all these other desires and all these other cravings. Yeah, but you weren't meeting with the Lord on a daily basis. You weren't spending time with Him. You weren't walking in the Spirit. Again, that John 37-39 through 39 passage says that this living water is going to be the presence of the Spirit of God in our life. Are you walking in the Spirit? Well, what does that mean? Are you praying? Are you reading? Are you worshiping? Are you serving? Are you walking in holiness? Are you walking in love? This is what it means to walk in the Spirit. And so people will come to the supposed Christians come to this conclusion. Well, I put my faith and trust in the Lord and it just didn't satisfy. That's just like a metaphor. That's just poetry. That's hyperbole for, you know, something. But it's not real. But listen, if you have connect, cut yourself off from the Lord and on those ways that we just spoke about, the Lord is being gracious to you and letting you fill that parched life again. How wrong would it be for us to be living in disobedience and rebellion against the Lord. And the whole time the Lord is cheering us on with a full life of, of satisfaction. No. I mean, that's not that we're just, it's like he's applauding us to our demise. But he doesn't do that. He takes it away. And we begin to feel maybe even some of those very same things that we felt before we came to Christ. There's a moment in Israel's history and in, in their existence. Jeremiah 2, verses 9 through 13, and we'll close with this. Therefore I will bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children. I will bring charges for pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and see, send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there's been such a thing. 
Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people, he claims them, they're my people, have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They had drank of the fountain of living water. They had received from the Lord, but he says, but now you are drinking from cisterns. What's a cistern? It's a, a hole. It's, 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 a, it's a, a big hole in the, in the ground that they dig out, but they dig it out in bedrock. So when the rains come, the water will be held in there. They'll even plaster it so the water doesn't run out. And he says, you've forsaken me for that. Well, hey, the first you know, day, week of rainwater, be all right, I guess. I'm not feeling real thirsty about it, but you know, if that's what you have, that's what you have. But compared to spring water, a fountain of living water, what would you rather have? Why would you forsake me in a relationship with me for other things like this? And he says, but it's not just a bro- it's not just a cistern; it's a broken cistern. Which means this, when you hear the waters coming down from the heavens into you know, the, the, the place you live and you've put all those months of labor into this uh, cistern and you're thinking, we're going to have water tomorrow, you wake up and you see that there's a crack at the bottom of this cistern and all the water is drained out and you don't have a drop. And he says, when you forsake me, you go after things that are second rate, but really they're even worse than that because they won't satisfy you at all. So for those of you that maybe started off with the Lord and now your life feels so empty and you feel like Christianity hasn't lived up, no, it's because you've forsaken the Lord. It's because you're drinking at other streams. Be committed to the Lord. Get in the Word and read it like you used to. Pray like you used to. Serve like you used to. Not out of some kind of you know, religious obligation, but out of worship to the Lord. And watch those found, that fountainhead begin to just spring up in your life again. The Lord has made it such that our faith and our experience in this life will not be meaningful unless we stay intimately connected with Jesus. And if you have disconnected from Jesus, it's not Christianity, it's not the Christian faith, and it's not Jesus. It's that you've forsaken the fountain of living waters. And you've got to come back. It's like he said to the church of Ephesus, repent and do the first works, and he will receive. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth that ministers to us. We pray, Lord, that you would, you would speak to those that are thirsty. They would feel that desperate thirst of their soul, and they would call upon you. Lord, I pray for those who had called upon you, but now they're in that place of being thirsty all over again, wondering what's the real significance of their faith. I pray you would just speak to them and show them that they got to remain in you. They've got to continue to abide in you that they might receive that work of the Spirit in their life. And I want to give you a moment just to respond to the Lord. If you need to pray and receive Christ for the first time, then do that. Repent of your sin. Turn from that sin. Ask the Lord to forgive you. Ask him to come and fill you with that spirit. You might know that living water springing up in your life. And if you have forsaken the Lord and you've been drinking at other cisterns, then return to the Lord. Return to him. The Lord, we are grateful that you are patient with us. You don't send us away when we come running to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus.